At Airbnb, infrastructure management is standardized across the organization. Platform engineering teams build tools that allow the other teams throughout the organization to work more effectively. A platform engineering team handles problems such as continuous integration, observability, and service discovery. Other teams throughout the company use the tools that the platform engineering teams build. For example, there's a team at Airbnb that builds the search and discovery system that's used by customers who are looking for a place to stay. That team does not want to have to worry about how they're deploying software and how their service is being logged and how to scale up or down. All of that should be taken care of by the platform engineering team. At a large company like Airbnb, there is so much happening across the infrastructure. Services are being deployed, services are having outages, databases are being resharded. With all of this change occurring, it can be difficult for a team to pinpoint the cause of a service outage. Digging through logs and dashboards is often insufficient. That's not what you want to be doing during an outage. Joey Parsons is the founder of FX, a company that is building a platform for observing and managing the changes across infrastructure. FX is like a news feed for a service. An application instrumented with FX gives the engineers a single endpoint that they can navigate to for understanding the history of their service. Joey joins the show to talk about his experience as an infrastructure engineer at Airbnb and how that experience informs the work of his new company, FX. Joey Parsons, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Excited to be here. You have a lot of experience, Rackspace, Sugar CRM, Clout, Flipboard, Airbnb. Give me your condensed history for how infrastructure has evolved over the course of your career. Sure. Yeah. So I guess I've been at this for almost 20 years now, which is actually pretty crazy to think about. I just came to that realization over like the last year and kind of like looking back at my career, it's kind of been you know, almost two different decades of different types of work, right? So when I first started my career, it was back in the very early, like, managed hosting days of Rackspace. When I joined, we were about 100 employees. We had two data centers, and we simply had a bunch of different, like, servers sitting on bread racks that we would rent out to customers. And from there, we, we ran basically a support team where we were kind of like the systems administrators for all of the customers. So they would call in, have a question about something that was going on with like their Apache LAMP stack or something with like a send mail or not being able to like send email to their customers. And on kind of like a dime, we would pick up a phone immediately begin kind of troubleshooting the issues and solve questions for them. So it was kind of like a, a re really unique environment where you were kind of thrown into the fire every day and you literally had no idea what you were going to be working on. So, and, and that was probably kind of the, you know, working in kind of like data centers and, you know, physical servers running on in data centers is probably like the first 10 years of my career. At Sugar CRM, we, we rented out co-located cages from different providers in the Bay Area and, and literally ran kind of like both the data center operations, the software that ran on those servers and the business that ran on, on their servers as well. Fast forward 10 years after that to kind of like the next kind of evolution of my career where I worked at Clout, Flipboard and Airbnb, that was much more kind of like cloud oriented primarily running on top of like AWS infrastructure. Cloud was pretty much in our migration from running primarily in our own data center to then like running some software in AWS. That was my first kind of like a uh, experience working in that world. But then Flipboard and Air Airbnb were like cloud native from the start running 100% on AWS. Right. As you said, 
Airbnb was one of the first very big cloud native companies like to really, really scale to something gigantic. Do you remember any problems that there was no roadmap for how to solve being at a hyperscale cloud native company where there's not really a roadmap to follow? In some sense, I think the, you know, one of the things that we ran up in an Airbnb is we would, you know, constantly push the limits of like what AWS could provide, right? One of the fun scale challenges there was that simply every Sunday was our biggest day of traffic ever. And then every Monday was our biggest day of traffic ever. So not just from kind of like the, uh, our, our own infrastructure and being able to scale our own applications, but you know, we would run into like the maximum size of like a database that we could get from RDS. And then after that, had would really have to kind of figure out how we were going to scale beyond like the, the, the top level services that Amazon provided. So uh, it wasn't necessarily a, a ton of kind of like features that we were missing on the cloud, but it was really just kind of about like, how do we continue to scale at the, at the scale that we were going at that point? You were at Airbnb for three years from 2015 to 2018. Describe the infrastructure when you joined the company. Yeah. So when I first joined Airbnb, we were already kind of like a powerhouse company at that point, had already kind of like obtained unicorn status. And, you know, we're we're already kind of like a force in the industry. And at that point, uh, the application was still primarily kind of like a monolithic Rails app, right? The same monolithic Rails app that uh, our Supermerbion Rails app that our CTO Nate had created many years before. And while there had been kind of like a move to service-oriented architecture at that point, it still was primarily the lion's share of like all the engineers were working on this one Rails app. We had our own kind of like deploy tool that, you know, a few engineers have spoken about before in, in other conferences, but um, our own deploy tool to basically take that Ruby on Rails app, run a bunch of tests against it, and then basically run it across a bunch of EC2 servers, right? And that was the, that was like the primary like mechanism for most of like the Airbnb functionality to be delivered to our end users. So, and primarily running all and, and all of it was running on top of AWS at that point. The team that you worked on, I know, is around infrastructure. Would you describe it as a platform engineering team? Yeah, so you know, we went through different evolutions of kind of like what the the actual like teams kind of like were called, but essentially we were basically building the foundation for how all of the other engineers interacted with the infrastructure. So, you know, part of our charter was to make it so that every single engineering team could operate effectively without really needing to understand kind of like what was happening underneath the hood. Like, you know, you want most of your engineers in a company basically building leverage for the business by building products you know, shipping new code that's going to, that's going to, you know, impact our end users. And our team was basically building kind of like all the underlying infrastructure that made that go. And what was your process for figuring out what those business service teams actually needed? Uh, a lot of it was just talking to them, right? So, you know, we would look at how they were able to basically ship code every day, right? And, and look at how long that that took. And then also look at how reliable the services were that we were building, right? So some of it was reactive in terms of we would have different types of downtime or we would run into particular issues with like getting code out in kind of like a, a timely way. And then we would prioritize that kind of stuff pretty heavily. And then... You know, on the other side, you know, we would talk to them about what they needed and what they needed to have built, and we would end up going going and building that for them. 
How much did you try to standardize? Did you try to standardize everything they used, the CI pipeline, the deployment method, or using containers, using VMs? How strict did you want to be on the standardization? Uh, so I think you know what we wanted to do is basically create like a golden path. So if you used kind of like a, the tooling that we provided, then we would provide support for you. There, there, would be, there would be assistance that, you know, everybody could really understand what was happening in incident or when something went wrong. So if you kind of went down the golden path and used the languages that, you know, that we built kind of like hooks for, then, you know, you were ended up in a better state than if you chose to kind of like use something off that golden path. But for the most part, most teams chose to kind of like go down the golden path just because of the support that they would get. And what was within that golden path? Can you tell me about what composes it? Yeah. So, uh, you know, a lot of it was just kind of like choosing kind of like the right languages, choosing the databases that we used, also choosing the observability tools that we provided. So while we did use third-party providers, we had kind of like, uh, we had, you know, particular use cases in terms of how we use them. So it was basically a path of kind of like everything that was around the operability of your service. If you chose to kind of go down the golden path, then, you know, it was, it was well supported by us. Can you tell me about the blessed languages and the blessed databases or is that stuff you can't can't talk about it? Uh, it was pretty simple stuff. There's nothing like quite too interesting there. You know, we had particular types of relational databases obviously that we used and then a little bit of like no SQL databases that we use, but for the most part it, it's nothing, you know, quite atypical. Did you support the data science and data infrastructure teams also? Uh, for like, uh, we had our own kind of like foundational teams within the data world and they supported kind of like the, the data infrastructure environment, you know, machine learning, data science on top of that. And that wasn't kind of like within the purview of like what we did on production. Why are those needs different? There are different use cases, right? So in some cases, they, they overlap. But for the most part, you have kind of like your production serving environment that impacts, like directly impacts your end users. While on the data warehouse side, you know, some of those artifacts may end up in data stores that end up going to the end users. But for the most part, there's very different kind of like use cases between kind of like your almost back office data systems with the production serving data. When you talk to people at... I'm trying to think of companies in your like your contemporaries like Netflix, Uber, Lyft, Stripe, maybe Instacart. Did the methodologies of platform engineering, were they the same from company to company? Or do you feel like, is there something distinct about Airbnb? Is there something distinct about every company about how you should do platform engineering? Uh, I think that there's definitely consistency across the different platform teams across, you know, the, you know these kind of like hyper growth companies that you mentioned. But then there's also obviously like differences, right? A lot of it's just kind of, you know, when you end up doing things a particular way for a few years, right? That kind of ingrains its way into your culture and your development practices. But for the most part, a lot of, you know, infrastructure leaders across those companies talk and they get ideas from each other. And, you know, obviously people move companies and a lot of like that mind share spreads pretty quickly. So, you know, uh, if you look at kind of the, Air, the evolution of Airbnb from a monolithic Rails app to then using microservices. You know, we had senior engineers coming to our team from, you know, the likes of Google and Facebook and Twitter that were heavily, and, and Lyft, that were heavily influencing kind of like our move from a monolithic Rails app to then kind of like this now world of microservices. In my conversations with some of these different companies, there are these high-level business concerns that end up translating to how certain platform engineering 
team constraints work. So for example, if you talk to people at Netflix, like building infrastructure for doing streaming and bitrate ladders and stuff has all these downstream impacts on like how you're serving and what are the things they want to spend time on to optimize. If you look at Uber or Lyft, the end user has this flaky network connection and the sensitivity of having information relayed as quickly as possible and being super reliable is really important because these people are in these kind of like situations where you're like in a car with somebody and that has downstream effects to the infrastructure. I'm trying to think of what are the canonical business problems that feed down into how you would do infrastructure management. Gotcha. I think in, in going back to your earlier question around consistency, right? I, I think, you know, for the most part, every, every company wants to build a, you know, reliable environment that is cost effective, you know, d- depending upon your business and also has, you know, performance characteristics that meet the requirements of their particular types of end users, right? For the, uh, you know, Uber and Lyft uh, thing that you mentioned, you know, they have much more of a real-time component than, than a company like Airbnb. But one of the most interesting things about Airbnb is that you never know where your users are around the world, right? So not only is there this component of like not being able to like geographically distribute your data because a person might fly from Japan to the East Coast and then to South America all within a day and stay at different Airbnbs. And, you know, some of the most unique Airbnbs are going to be in probably some of the most interesting areas in the world where there's not going to be a lot of great connectivity. So, you know, we focus a lot on kind of like edge reliability and, you know, edge performance in a way that most people probably wouldn't think Mm. that Airbnb would simply because of uh, like where people were around the world and, you know, kind of like the the greatness or the weakness of the networks that they were actually using at that point. So that that was a uh, a big kind of effort there. So you would have to like find CDN infrastructure in Pakistan or something. Yeah, yeah. So it was kind of like finding some of the like the best of breed CDNs that we could work with globally and figuring out a way to kind of really ensure that that CDN was the best to use at that given moment based on kind of like real user metrics that we had seen at that point. And by the way, speaking of CDNs, your time frame 2015 to 2018 and i think even maybe subsequent to that the cdns have really become like full-on cloud providers with all this like processing functionality was airbnb taking advantage of that oh yeah yeah so i think there's you know a lot of interesting things that are, are kind of moving towards the edge these days right like whether it's on the fastly side being able to write varnish at the edge there or even with like aws CloudFront, you know the fact that you can do lambda at the edge and and process data before it actually makes its way all the way back to your data center or you know have a little bit more intelligence around how cached objects work at the edge is actually quite a powerful uh, mechanism that, you know, obviously wasn't available seven, eight, ten years ago in, in kind of like a really easy way for an engineer to grok. Yeah. How did Airbnb handle build versus buy? So, you know, again, when you're a growing business like Airbnb, you really want all of your engineers, like your human capital, working towards solving business problems that can help that the business can leverage. So we, we leaned pretty heavily on the on the buy side of things if there was a vendor that really made sense. So in terms of like, you know, obviously on the cloud side, you know, we, we primarily used AWS and, you know, leveraged as much as we could there from like the data store side to 
the compute side to really kind of, you know, not have to think too much about what we were doing on, on those aspects. And then from kind of like an observability standpoint, you know, we were heavy users of Datadog from the start and really leveraged what we could from kind of like both the vendor and open source world to, you know, not have to spend or not have to have so many engineers basically working on building those tools for us internally. When you think about the word multi-cloud as it applies to a company like Airbnb, there's a number of ways you could practically approach it. You could say, look, we need full-on failover. We need to be able to fail over all of our services. We need to fail over all of our databases. We need to be able to fail over all of our data lake. We need to basically replicate everything over to Google Cloud. That's basically unrealistic today. You could say there's some key pieces of our infrastructure that we need to replicate over such that in the case that AWS somehow magically goes down, we're going to try to accommodate that. You could just say, okay, look, AWS is on the critical path. There's no getting around it. If AWS goes down, we go down. How do you navigate that spectrum of choices when it comes to heavily relying on AWS? Yeah. So I think that, you know, it's it's not even so much a multi-cloud question or, you know, going all in on AWS question. It really kind of just comes down to kind of like the needs of the business, right? And it really just kind of boils down to kind of like, you know, what, what like your recovery point objective is, right? And kind of like the time objective. A lot of folks will, you know, kind of equate this to kind of like, am I active passive or am I active active? And those are really simplistic terms to describe, you know, the world of, you know, failover, but is your point objective an hour ago and you need to be able to get there in 30 minutes or is it 10 seconds ago and you need to get there in like one second, right? And a lot of that just really pertains on the type of business that you're running and, you know, really what you're able to provide and, you know, how much effort you want to put in that way. So I think like, um, you know, if you can get there by going multi-cloud, you know, and that's something that from kind of like a, a failover standpoint is, is important to your business, then obviously like the investment is worth it. But if you don't have like a point objective or a time objective, that's so incredibly tight. If you can get by with coming back a day later or something like that, and it taking a day to restore, and that's how you invest your time, then that, that could make sense for a business. But it's really just a kind of around, you know, what do you actually need to have happen if in case of kind of like a total failover? Tell me about the observability tooling at Airbnb. Yeah. So, uh, you know, for the most part, we really kind of like leveraged external vendors, right? Uh, it wasn't something that we necessarily wanted to have a bunch of core expertise in at the company. So it, it was obviously like uh, when we were predominantly like a Rails app, we used New Relic for APM, which was actually, you know, fairly great. It's like you just drop a gem in and you get all of this observability like built in for pretty much free. And then for kind of like custom metrics and, you know, your typical kind of like, you know, how well was this actual? like server to server doing and kind of the metrics that would come out of the application. We use Datadog primarily for that. So there's been some some kind of like new tooling that's been built over kind of like the past couple of years in terms of kind of like how to do distributed tracing within the system, especially as they've moved from kind of like primarily like a mono, the monorail into microservices. But a little bit of that's been developed past my time. Uh, speaking from um, just an industry analyst standpoint, Datadog is a sponsor of the show, so I have to be like, uh, I guess, full disclosing of that. But so many logging companies, so many observability companies. Why was Datadog able to be so successful? I won't necessarily give like 
the full like Airbnb viewpoint on this. It's a little bit more of my uh, my, my thoughts uh, around this is that I think they really killed it on the user experience. Yeah, I think the uh, when you're coming from the world, at least prior to this, even before Grafana existed, uh, most companies were just running Graphite and the the default kind of like Graphite UI or you know Cacti and these other companies where it was almost these you know, not so much like real time kind of like static images that would update that would, you know, you'd have on like a monitor that you could see. And there wasn't much kind of like a ability to interact with kind of like your data in a really like great way for like the user experience. So, you know, when, when Datadog took kind of like the concept of like, you know, all of these different time series metrics and being able to, you know, visually build a chart in a really clean way with, you know, a great kind of like user experience there, I think that that was the uh, ultimately kind of like, you know, one of the great reasons they got a lot of really early adoption. And then beyond that, uh, they were able to really scale as like, whatever they're using on their back end to be able to handle the amount of metrics that were coming that way, right. their way ended up being kind of like uh, what took that user experience to the next level. Yeah, they're an interesting company because like it does seem that they really ground out the rest of the market just by sheer persistence, tactical decisions. There's no one weird trick because, yeah. you know, I think when they enter the market, there's a bunch of logging providers, a bunch of metrics things and um, they kind of pulled away, uh, not totally <laughs> speaking from an unbiased standpoint, <laughs> but you just like, it's interesting. Cause it's like you, this is kind of a commodity. It's, I, I don't know. It's just interesting. They're a case study. I try to understand. I just yeah. don't really know how they were able to pull away from this, from the market. Did you have an observability stack that was deployed with every service? Like when, when the service team goes down the golden path, do they, is there some out of the box experience they have where they get observability across all their tools? Oh, for sure. Yeah. So, you know, basically when, when, you know, when we were in the virtualized world of, you know, deploying the Rails app and, and our Java apps on top of EC2 machines, by default, you would have kind of like the observability stack agents installed on the mach those machines. And it would automatically pick up, you know, the service that the service that was running, the environment that was running on, and then, and then, you know, basically pull that into, uh, into like, you know, the data dogs and new relics of the world and, and the for logging as well. Yeah. It would basically feed all of like those services logs into our Elastic cluster. Okay, and that experience for the service owner was it like a library? Was it a sidecar container? How did they get that out of the box experience? In the virtualized world, it was basically like an agent that ran on the machines. But in the Kubernetes world, either like a daemon set or a sidecar that's running, you know, in that environment where the agent's running, and then and then you know pulling the relevant information from that environment. So that the you know other than in the Datadog world, having to go forth and instrument custom metrics that you wanted to have as part of like your application, right? So let's say you have, you know, let's say you're writing the search service, right? And you want to be able to track kind of like your search queries per second. By default, it wouldn't automatically like increment a counter in Datatog every single, you know, every single valid search request that came through. So an engineer would need to use kind of like the Datadog libraries within kind of like the application within the frameworks that we provided to then, you know, write something that would send kind of like either the counter or the gauge or the timing, the timing metric over to Datadog. When I talked to Lyft a couple weeks ago, and they were saying that, or uh, Vicky was saying they deploy like five sidecars per service. 
do, do you know how many like side like every every service you deployed was there like an overhead of a bunch of sidecars like logging monitoring i don't know a bunch of different things yeah so i i don't know exactly kind of like what's running in that environment but you know for for the most part and, and in most companies you're going to have some sort of you'll have like your monitoring agent your logging agent this could be the same thing and in some places you may have like a sidecar that's running for security reasons right and then you'll likely have some sort of you know proxy sidecar right like you know whether it's like something like envoy that lyft uses or uh, airbnb famously ran smart stack which was a kind of like service discovery system built on top of ha proxy for a long time and i'm not i'm not sure where the state of that is today but that would also be a sidecar that could potentially run in in this world so you're typically going to have three to four of these at least depending on you know what kind of golden path your team has provided Okay, well, let's go deeper on the service discovery front because that pertains to what you're actually doing today. Tell me what problem service discovery solves because I'm sure there's people listening who don't really know the problem of service discovery. Yeah, so, you know, service discovery really kind of helps engineers basically build the the frameworks for how services, you know, talk to one another and how kind of like uh, how those services like register with, you know, service discovery to then begin receiving traffic. So uh, I'll, I'll take you back a few years to kind of like the the smart stack implementation at Airbnb. And it's an open source project that's out there on, on Airbnb's GitHub. But essentially what smart stack is, is, is two different components. There's, you know, a nerve component and then a, a synapse component. And the back end for smart stack in, in those days was basically a zookeeper. So whenever a let's say you have the pricing service right and you know the pricing service is running on three different containers or three different machines when that pricing service becomes available it uses nerve to then register that like okay this host or this container is now ready to receive traffic and then publishes that status into zookeeper and then all of the different clients that would then talk to the pricing service are watching that particular like node in Zookeeper and saying, okay, now there is an additional node to then send traffic to. And the way this manifested in SmartStack is that that Synapse client that would run on the machine that would be talking to the pricing service would then update its local HA proxy config to say, now this you know set of two hosts is now three hosts for this backend that talks to the pricing service. And then it would then route traffic that's intended to the pricing service locally into its HA proxy and then to those backend services. And the problem that is being solved there is that if I have a user request, that user request probably is going to need to hit multiple services. Services are going to need to hand off requests to one another. Therefore, the services need to know the locations of each other. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's basically kind of like, you know, you're basically building a routing map within your infrastructure dynamically. So, you know, many years before, if, if you think about like uh, why like the concept of like service, service discovery and service meshes become so important is that, you know, prior to this, you know, you'd have, you know, something that would need to basically 
run regularly to then update a list of hosts uh, that you would stick in like a load balancer, and then someone would be writing that config, applying it to the load balancer, and then and then and then going from there, right? And now with like the advent of cloud and containers and like short-lived kind of like instances, you really need something that's dynamic that doesn't require like human intervention or someone to kind of like know what is up and what is down so that, you know, things can automatically join kind of like the mesh as they become healthy or as they come become like spun up for the first time and, and then become healthy. The implementation that you described at Airbnb the zookeeper era implementation by modern standards sounds pretty complicated correct me if i'm wrong but relative to what we do today or what what is in the post kubernetes world what is the standard by which people are doing service discovery yeah i wouldn't say that there's necessarily kind of like a like like standard i guess at this point but you know through through you know new service meshes out there like like most famously like istio and like linkerd and and things like that you know a lot of this functionality just kind of like get from 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 the start right and not just kind of like the discovery piece of it, but, you know, how you kind of like handle like things like circuit breaking and failover and kind of graceful degradation. These are kind of like, you know, like first class things with these environments that really make it a lot easier on kind of like the end user developer to build highly available applications without having to go through the effort of something, setting something up as, you know, as, as even in modern, modern standards as involved as something like SmartStack. So I think that the in kind of like the container world where things are even more short-lived than the environments before in, in like the post-Kubernetes world, you really need something that is really quick and dynamic and can deal with kind of like the daily kind of like machinations of a really kind of like fast-moving environment, like, you know, your container is running in pods. So The company that you're building is FX and... The way that I see effects might be categorized as service catalog or maybe service discovery plus service catalog. Explain what you're building. Yeah, yeah. So it's um, the, the, the kind of like primary way to describe what we're building at FX is that it's really helping engineering teams kind of overcome some of the organizational challenges of using microservices. So, you know, what we've spent a lot of time talking about is a lot of, you know, the, the really cool kind of like modern underlying technology that companies are using to build kind of like these new these new infrastructures and new ways of doing things. And while on the technology side, a lot of things are, you know, really moving along greatly and you can build a great company on top of Kubernetes. You can go all in on something like Amazon ECS. You can go all in on something like Am or like AWS Lambda. There's a lot of kind of like cognitive load challenges that come with moving from that world where you have just like this one application that you need to worry about. And suddenly you need to be able to worry about tens, if not hundreds of if not a thousand different components and really kind of like just keeping track of what anything is, right? So a lot of kind of like what, what we've been building at FX actually comes from challenges that we experienced while moving to, from a monolith to microservices at Airbnb. The first primarily is just kind of like naming things, right? And, and knowing what something is based on its name. So there's no naming scheme that any engineer can come up with in the world 
that's probably going to scale beyond kind of like 30 things, much less 100 or 1,000 different things, right? Let's say you decide to name all of your services off like Game of Thrones, right? Or Star Wars or, you know, those universes still aren't large enough to, to really kind of like fully give you a unique name for everything. And if they are, who's to say that all of your engineers are so well-versed in that world to where they can intuitively know what something is. So uh, I'll give you kind of like the example of like a pricing service, for example. You can't name the pricing service the pricing service because if you go to like your wiki or you're like looking in your email and you search for pricing, you're not going to get a lot of really unique hits that are relative to that service. You might get a lot of just random things about pricing that have happened in kind of like your organization, like what something your biz dev to person's talking about pricing. So uh, what companies typically do is they end up giving it sort of like a unique name. But imagine being a new hire in a company and looking at all of the different things that have been named and joining a team where you're working on 15 to 20 services and just not even being able to like even grok what something is, right? At Airbnb, like there, there wasn't like a particular naming scheme. We allowed kind of, you know, the, the, the team that owned a particular microservice to be able to name it whatever they wanted to. And, you know, the naming scheme for things that may have happened in search were no, not related to anything that was happening on kind of like the pricing side. And then, you know, even some of like the, the core components within, within the application were named completely differently. And there's services that we interacted with on a daily basis that were involved in like incidents and downtime that I still quite don't understand why they were named that because they made absolutely no sense. So imagine a world where, you know, you're coming in as a new engineer on a team or you're dealing with an incident where, you know, it's, it's a couple of dependencies away from something that you worked on and not being able to not even knowing what that service is and not finding not being able to find a good place to actually describe what that service is and not only is like the name important but all of the metadata around what that particular microservice is like what is it written in how is it deployed is it a tier zero service does it actually impact you know end users or is it a more kind of like a like a back-end services that you know, could go down with like, without any user impact. Do you group your services in any particular way, right? Is this part of like the edge infrastructure? Is this part of kind of like the service infrastructure? And then like most importantly, who owns that service, right? Like which team is ultimately responsible for its health, for its documentation? If you have questions about that service, what's the team to go talk to? So all of these things actually become like really important. You know, once you get above like, you know, 10 to 25 engineers, like, you know, 10 to 25 Microsoft services, like the cognitive load issues just become, you know, really difficult to be able to kind of track these sorts of things. So, you know, one of the, the key kind of like tenants of FX is to really kind of be the system of record for all of the microservices in your environment and all of the metadata around them so that engineers aren't left hanging and don't have to like run around in Slack or search across 10 different tools to actually figure out what this particular microservice is and be able to really kind of, you know, grok that in a really elegant way. There is this term I've heard before, service catalog. Right. Is that 
what you're building? In some sense. So I think there's definitely kind of a service catalog. You know, it sounds very kind of like ITIL, like uh, IT ops days from, from, from yesteryear. That's obviously still really important. But I think that what we're building is a little bit more built for, you know, kind of like modern cloud native companies that have adopted, you know, new technologies to, to move towards kind of microservices. And it's really just kind of like one big component of what we're doing. So the second large component of what we're doing at Avast is that from like a catalog standpoint of like knowing what all of your microservices are, the state of those microservices is also quite important. So going back to kind of like the... uh, like a monolithic application, when you want to understand the state of like that monolithic application, there's typically like one or two different places to look. You know, you're going to go look at the the whatever you're using for deploys. You might go have a feed of feature flags or experiments that are being turned on or off. And then you can go visit like the AWS console to understand its capacity. Imagine having to do this or understand the state of a particular microservice when there's like a thousand of them. And they could be using different deploy mechanisms. You could have some that are running on AWS Lambda that are being deployed via like serverless.com or Amazon SAM. You could have containers that are being deployed through Kubernetes. And you have all of these different places to look for the state of a particular application. So one of the things that we've built that I think is really important is basically a reverse chronological feed of all of the changes that have happened happened to that microservice that have been initiated by a human or through automation. So this is kind of like low-frequency frequency data, but actually like, you know, high fidelity and really important to understand kind of the state of an application. So before a product like FX, what would happen would be, you know, you get page at three o'clock in the morning, your pricing service is down, you hop online, you open up a bunch of different tabs, you might open up, you know, your observability tool. You'll open up your CI/CD tool. You'll open up, you know, feature flags. You'll open up experiments. You'll open up that capacity tool, and you're trying to like cor- cor- like uh, correlate time in like different time zones and different different visualizations to figure out okay, did anything happen in like the last ten minutes? Like that's the first place I should start. Like was there a deploy? Right? Did a feature flag get turned on? Was there like a capacity change? Did this suddenly go from like ten hosts to three hosts? Right? Those are the typical signals that you're going to look for before you start digging for something even more serious. So right now you might see like a vertical line on your graph in a particular observability tool, maybe signifying that there was a change, but you don't have a lot of context around like who did it, like, you know, what exactly was the change, which merge and GitHub or which version is this related to. So through our feed, you'd basically be able to say, okay, five minutes ago, Joey did a deploy. And that's probably the reason why, you know, we could be in the state that we are right now. So it really kind of beyond kind of like the metadata around what a service is, we pull in as much information as we can about like what has changed in that service so that we give you kind of like a reverse chronological view, almost like Twitter of all of those different changes that have happened so that you can quickly kind of like narrow down if anything was related to kind of like a human human change. Okay. So if you get all your services instrumented with this thing, you can have a change set of updates that have been applied or uh, potential like critical outages or, um, you know, anomalies that are being surfaced. And you can go into effects and just see a news feed of things that are changing around your infrastructure. Exactly. Yeah. 
did you build this thing at Airbnb? Was there an internal thing that was similar to this? Yeah, so we actually built uh, two components of this that you know that we've combined into FX, but were separate projects at Airbnb. So in one sense, we you know had a very naive version of like service ownership, like tracking at, at Airbnb, where we'd basically have you know like a YAML file that would exist. Um, in like an applications like Git repo that would basically say like, okay, like, you know, this is the owner's file. Here is the actual like, you know, owner owning team. Right. And that worked fairly effectively. And then on the like operational change long side, we basically built a, a similar tool to this. Uh, it was much more kind of like logging oriented in that, you know, it was basically log logs of particular types that would end up in the system, but it was actually really effective to be able to, we built a, a, a listener in Slack that if a pager duty notification triggered, it would immediately like notice that pager duty notification triggered and then list out the five changes that recently happened on that service below it. So that, you know, the engineer would have a lot of context to basically say, Oh, like th this could be related to one of these, you know, feature flags or deploys or experiments that was, you know, turned on in like the last few minutes. Mm. So for a user of FX, what is required to instrument their application with it? Yeah. So from a getting your services into our platform, uh, which is kind of like the first big component right now, we've really focused again on kind of cloud native technologies and more modern ways of doing microservices. So from a Kubernetes perspective, we essentially drop a pod into your environment. It will discover all of the services that you're running and then send that information back up to our platform. And then from an Amazon ECS and Lambda perspective, we basically, you know, have you create like an IAM user in your environment and delegate access to us. And then we use the AWS APIs to grab a lot of like the, the relevant service information that you're using in Lambda and ECS and then pull that into our environment. After that, from, from the Kubernetes side, we basically have a UI in the app where you can define kind of like the description of this microservice. You know, here's the owning team and other metadata around that particular microservice and then click generate config and it'll basically generate uh, Kubernetes annotations to when you would then add to like your, you know, your service file for your service YAML for that particular like uh, Kubernetes service. And then from then on, that information would be sucked into our environment. So yeah, from uh, getting your services in into the platform, it's fairly easy for kind of like that first step of building that in. And then from the feed perspective, uh, we've built a lot of different integrations with different tools to be able to kind of pull in from um, common CD systems, like monitoring systems to pull in alert data, things like pager duty for, you know, incident data to be able to build kind of like a rich feed. And a lot of those are just simple API integrations to where, you know, within those applications, you create an API key, a read-only API key and delegate access to us. And then we use, we basically built something that then kind of like pulls down from those environments. And then we also have an API. So let's say you have a custom system, a custom deploy system that's, you know, are using something that doesn't have kind of like a, an API that we can pull this information from. At the end of an event, you can basically post like a JSON object up to us and we'll ingest into a system and then show it as part of like the show it as part of the feed. From what I've heard, Airbnb is not the only company that has wanted something like this or has built something like this internally. Have you talked to other companies that have built 
this kind of thing internally? Oh, for sure. I mean, most famously, like on the feed side, uh, Facebook has a project called OpsLog internally that 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 I think a lot of a lot of inspiration for tools like this that other people have built have, really? have kind of come from. And I think that from the research that you know we did before starting this company, I spent a bit of time with other infrastructure leaders in 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 this world. You know, people that were similar, you know, like peers, uh, while I was at Airbnb. And for the most part, everybody has these challenges, right? Yeah. Everybody that's gone from you know like a monolithic app to microservices, or have started on microservices from the start, it's a pretty quick you know. Get to getting to that, you know, 10, anywhere between like 10 to 20, 25 microservices, depending on how complex they are. Once you get to that point, you begin having these issues of like, you know, keeping track of things, having you know, proper owners and just kind of like the organizational complexity of moving to an infrastructure like this. So it was a pretty cool thing to, from a business perspective, to, to hear that a lot of folks have these problems and have either built tools internally that solve some of these issues that, you know, they'd rather have a vendor come Come in and kind of like build and continue it to evolve for them, or they've been looking for something like this and haven't been able to find it in the market. Yeah, because when you're troubleshooting today, it's like, I mean, the most recent innovation, uh, well, not, I don't know if it's the most recent, but what significant innovation that comes to mind is now I can look through my Slack channels. Like now I can look at Slack notifications. We're drowning in Slack notifications. And, and even still, right? Like, you may not know the right Slack channel to go look at. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you've written about this a little bit. Like you also don't know what dashboard to look at. Like exactly. single service might have like 12 dashboards. You're like, okay, well, I'm going to look through these. And like, oh, actually now I'm looking at my distributed tracing. And I noticed that actually there's something that causes me to go look at this other service. Cause like there's upstream latency and like that's something. And if you had a first port of call that was a news feed that you could look through to see stuff that's related to infrastructure that you work on, that could be highly useful for just at least setting the table for how are you going to triage this given scenario? Exactly. Yeah. Go, going back to that analogy of like, you know, it's three o'clock in the morning, you get paged, the pricing service is down. Time right? to read the newsfeed. Yeah. yeah. And before that, what would happen is, you know, let's say you're actually working on search, right? And the pricing service is three kind of like uh, degrees of separation away from you as far as like a dependency goes, right? But you start bubbling up on the search service as a result of, you know, something, something strange happening on the pricing service. Typically, what you would do is like, okay, what observability tools do we use for search? Let me open up all of those in my tabs, right? And then I'm going to search for like whatever we name the pricing service and all of those tabs. Maybe they use the same tools. Maybe they don't. Maybe there's, you know, maybe you're using Datadog for observability and there's five different dashboards for whatever you call the pricing service. And you're not quite sure which one to look at because you don't look at this, you don't look at this service all day long. So what a tool like FX gives you is like, you know, you find whatever that pricing service page is. And on the left hand side, you have a links to all of like the best dashboards that have been set up by that team that owns the pricing service. And you can just click directly through on those and, and really kind of be able to dive in quickly and understand what's happening without having to, you know, ping that sovereign engineer that knows all of this, you know, information in their head, or go digging around to find this information across a bunch of different tools. And you may not even realize that you're looking at the wrong thing. This is what the the uh, investor people call DevSumer, right? Like it's Dev the, <laughs> it's the uh, developer tool that feels like a consumer product. 
developer tool where you open it up and if you're reading a news feed. In some sense, yeah, I, I hadn't quite thought about heard it that, that way. I, I, you know, there's there was a while where we were kind of talk, talk, talking about this as almost like Twitter for your infrastructure, yeah, right. Or kind of, you know, you have the metadata around like your profile and and, and what the service is, and then on the right hand side, you have like you know the reverse chronological feed, like Twitter used to be of of just kind of like that reverse cron feed of of changes that have happened. So I think that there is definitely a. Um, a reason why a lot of us are building tools that are very similar to the tools that you might just end up using every day. And, you know, there's user interfaces that you're familiar with and that, I guess, DevSumer is a good way of putting it. Yeah. So Buoyant is working on a product that is very similar to this. I don't know if you've... Did you see Dive? I'm I'm familiar with Dive, yeah. What design decisions have they made differently? I actually haven't gone kind of like, you know, too fully deep in it yet. I, you know, a lot of it's just really built around like the cataloging piece. I think that, you know, the cataloging piece is just one big component of it. I think the timeline of events of changes ends up, you know, making the applicability of, you know, what a, a tool like FX could be, you know, fully used for. And I think, you know, we're just kind of kind of focus on, you know, making that experience as, as solid as we can and really listening to our users that are using this for, you know, improving time to kind of like understand what's happening in incidents and and get to the right tools faster and really kind of help them pinpoint a potential cause that could be happening when they're doing these sorts of things. So I think that there's definitely kind of like the uh, coordination component that really comes with just the catalog piece. But I think that there's a, a lot of real power in kind of like that, you know, event feed of uh, changes that have happened. So that's what we're focusing on. Thinking about the market, if... A company is entirely on Kubernetes. This thing sounds pretty easy to instrument. Like it sounds pretty easy to adopt. Or if they're entirely on AWS, your integration there seems pretty cool too. I don't know how tough it would be to integrate, but it sounds like you know reasonable at least. What I wonder from the business building standpoint, a lot of companies, the big enterprises, the big juicy enterprise contracts, they have heterogeneous infrastructure, right? It's like the cloud native superstar companies have already built something like this internally. Maybe they would adopt your effects because it would be like better than whatever they've built internally. But as far as really getting to the enterprise customer, the bigger enterprise customers, they're going to have really heterogeneous infrastructure, which is going to be harder to integrate with. I mean, maybe you can integrate over some subset of their services and it can be useful enough for them to use it. But do you worry about that? Like the fact that a partial integration is maybe kind of tough or do you just feel like it's like you're just early to the market and I don't know tell me how you think about that yeah so I, I think what you mentioned is is definitely true in terms of you know they they clearly I mean even in even in some of like the the kind of like hyper growth companies that that you'll hear that are using things like kubernetes they're not they're not all the way there yet right, right? you know they're they're you know either partially way through kind of like a long migration and, and things like that. So I think that while, while initially we've really focused on a few technologies for customers that will really kind of like understand this problem, right? Like they, you know, we, we found that, you know, through kind of like some of these modern modern technologies, the folks that are using those things really kind of like grasp what we're building easily. That's why we focused on like those particular things and kind of like the ability to kind of go from zero to one in, in those worlds is a bit 
bit easier for us. And but we do recognize that you know, and and we've begun building tools to work in any environment to be able to ingest data. Simply because not everybody is going to be like a, a nice, perfect cloud native example of a company. And you know, going to like the enterprise like heterogeneous concept that you mentioned, it's it's actually quite interesting, uh, quite interesting use case for our product. One thing that ends up happening in large enterprises is that you you have a ton of acquisitions, right? And those acquisitions all have their own infrastructure, sure. and it's just incredibly difficult to kind of keep track of. So, or you're going from you know you're in this world where you're moving these. 1,000 like on-prem things into the cloud and converting them to Lambda or converting them to ECS. And our platform with the ability to, you know, add like arbitrary tags to an environment or to, to a service you could essentially use those tags to track the migration. So you could you could pull up and see like, okay, you know, these are running in, you know, VMware locally, these, you know, 10, 15 services. Our plan is to move those 10 to 15 services to ECS over the next three months. And you could use a tag to kind of keep track of that status as it moves across the, the different platforms within our application. So, and then, you know, going back to the acquisition example, use our p- platform to kind of like tag services that have come in through a particular acquisition mm. so that you could pull all of them up into different one simple view. So we're working on a way to basically support any kind of compute environment so that it makes sense for, you know, any size company in terms of like where they are and their, you know, move towards like cloud native tech. So the, oh yeah, the sprawl problem, like even a company like Airbnb where they're all on the cloud, like my understanding is that these companies all have sprawl problems. Like you cannot keep track of everything. Was that an issue at Airbnb? Did you have a sense? Did, can you, is there some dashboard that's like, here's everything? Like here's the map reduce of all the costs or all the number of EC2 whatevers, or is it really just complete madness? Uh, that, well, that that one place where everything exists was like the the bill. The bill. <laughs> so okay. That, all that right. was like the all that, right. that was like the single spot where you could actually you know see everything in kind of like a retrospective manner. I, I'm not sure how similar Airbnb was to to other companies, but you know we really kind of we didn't want to get in the way of innovation, right? So we allowed engineers to to spin up whatever they needed, whether it was like a data store or more hosts and and things like that, and. You know, it, it it worked out pretty well. Like we believed everybody was like well intentioned and 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 was going to do the right thing. So, but it, it would manifest itself in kind of like the bill at the end, right? You know, we 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 built some tools, obviously, to you know track this stuff through kind of like service ownership because you know you'd, if if you had a question, you needed to be able to know who to kind of like reach out to and talk to them about it. So that was obviously important, but it's hard, right? Like it's it's hard to really keep track of everything. And I think what a company like FX can do in terms of like cataloging at least just like your microservices and building a really kind of great culture around kind of like the maintenance of that data, I think is a a really good first step. Yeah. Can you tell me, did Airbnb use cloud cost, any cloud cost management software or was that did you build anything in house to do that? I mean, that's a huge issue, also, right? Yeah, yeah. So you know, we use some of like the main vendors out there to kind of like look at our kind of like general overall costs, and we built some tools internally to you know track that stuff better. But it's hard to kind of like really get a a, a full purview of everything that's happening mm. and and really kind of like understand it, right? I think you know one of the challenges that that happens with any sort of like external cost tools, it's any sort of external cost tools that it's really hard to 
understand kind of like internal attribution, right? Which is really what you want. You really kind of want to be able to like assign those to kind of like, you know, the cost structure within how the company does like financial, sure. you know, reporting like internally. What's the expected value of an additional, of an additional server. Or exactly. Something. Exactly. Right. And a lot of, you know, most of the tools out there, at least the ones that I had the opportunity to kind of like evaluate and look at, they're really great from just like, you know, how do we manage our reserved instances? You know, where are places that we can save money? What are the opportunities here in terms of like reducing our bill? But in terms of any sort of, you know, financial forecasting or attribution to kind of cost centers internally, it, that kind of stuff is like really hard to come by. And you basically need to build a translation between either that tool or the AWS bill into a structure that makes sense for you internally. So it's something that I thought about a lot when I was at Airbnb. There's not really anything out there right now that I think really fully knocks it out of the park. This is like the next Datadog category, I'm convinced, is like one of these cloud costs, because none of these cloud costs manage, I mean, there's a lot of them that are doing great. Yeah. But like, what's going to be the one that like everybody centralizes on yeah. or that's the trendy one to use? It'll be interesting to, to follow. It certainly seems like it's, I mean, if you can be the cloud cost management company that everybody goes to, it's a great place to be. Yeah. It really depends on your angle there, right? It's, it's, I, I feel like uh, what, what I've seen is a lot of folks fo- focusing on kind of, you know, performance and efficiency, right? Rather than kind of, you know, any sense of what would make sense to an executive. So I think that's like the, uh, hmm. that's the, the challenge when hmm. it comes with like uh, definitely kind of money and, and, and representing it in a way like, are you building something for your engineers? Like to understand, you know, the cost of the services that they're running so that they could then make them more, more performant and make better informed decisions there? Yeah. Or are you building like a financial reporting team for like your your finance team and, and your CFO and the executive team to fully grok? And there's probably a market for both of those companies, but yeah. I think the marriage of that is probably yeah, yeah, what yeah. we really need and it just doesn't fully exist right now. Yeah. Yeah. I need a news feed for my AWS expenses maybe and then like you, you throw on you know new technologies that are that add additional like cost structures on there like like aws lambda and you know fargate and you know even like running kubernetes in the cloud right it suddenly becomes a different equation than yeah. even just running kind of ec2 you know five years ago it, that was even hard to grok at this point but now you have all of these different kind of uh different levers as opposed to just kind of like paying for a host for like, you know, an hourly charge, right? Now it's much, much more, intra- like there's much more, uh, you know, variance in terms of, you know, how does a Lambda function charge, right? Like what's, what are the unit economics of that and figuring out, it, should we move more to Lambda? Does it yeah. make sense for us, right? And having like make informed decisions there is actually pretty difficult right now. I feel. I also feel like there's not a whole lot of great information out there. Like, I feel like I have never heard of a company. I'm sure there's some out there, and maybe people can send me a message about this if they know. I feel like I have not heard of any companies that have shut down because of too expensive infrastructure. I mean, it's always because the overhire or pays people too much or something. Have you heard of companies shutting down because their like AWS bill is too high? Not, not really. Not that I know of. I mean, it definitely could affect your margins, right? Like if you're an advertising business and right. your, your, your AWS kind of costs are out of control, but it's not usually like the leading indicator of, of why a company would fail, right? Yeah. Because there's, there's enough that you can do there to kind of, again, that trade-off of going back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of your high availability, right? It's, you could run everything in one availability zone and not be charged for like data transfer across AZs and, you know, run at a much leaner cost than you would if you're running a 
across multiple environments and paying for that sort of transfer. So I think there's there's a lot of levers that you can use as you know as you're figuring things out to to kind of reduce your cost, but then that also has like the the detriment of not necessarily being as highly available. So it's always just a trade off. I want to get more perspective on your strategy for building this company and just generally speaking, how to build an infrastructure startup in 2020. So you went to KubeCon, right? The recent, most recent. We did go to KubeCon. We had a booth. Yeah. Yeah. So was that booth, were you just doing that kind of to show people like what's going on here and, or were you trying to close some deals or just POCs? What what was your goal there? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we, we went to KubeCon in, 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 in November and we had just really begun talking about what we were building in, in kind of like the middle of October. That's when we launched like our website and you know, tweeted about what we were doing and, and, and wrote a few blog posts about why we think it's important. And, you know, we hit up KubeCon a few weeks later and, you know, it was really just kind of a really great experience for us because all of companies, large and small that are using Kubernetes that, you know, can really kind of grok this problem where we're coming by the booth. Uh, we were able to give a lot of demos. I was actually able to kind of like a B test the way that I talk about the product (laughs) to see what, to what really resonates with people. So from us, it was really just kind of build some brand awareness, right? You know, get the FX name out there so that if people begin kind of having some of the organizational challenges that come with microservices, they might remember that that company that they ran in at KubeCon and, or has followed up with them. And then from kind of like a, just like product marketing perspective, just kind of like better understanding kind of like the users and being able to show them the app and, and get a lot of feedback and work on messaging on the fly was really invaluable for us. So, you know, uh, obviously like, you know, getting leads is great and, you know, getting people to follow up to come back on. But it was really just about like building our brand and, and being able to talk about the product, you know, do a hundred, hundred plus demos a day yeah. and, and really take that information back and, you know, inform some of our future decisions about how we're building and messaging the product. What was the response? Take my money? Pretty great. Pretty great. Like, I think one of the biggest worries I had going in is that people necessarily wouldn't understand why we were building what we were building. But, you know, the second that you begin kind of talking about, like, tell me about your your microservices infrastructure that yeah. you're running at your particular company and, and some of the challenges that come with it, most everybody will kind of go to that. It's really hard to keep track of what anything is, right? So it was validating for us from that perspective in that that was a lot of the original premise for building what we're building. And it was really great to kind of hear why why that was a challenge at a lot of companies yeah it'd be interesting like how you convince people that it's a painkiller instead of a vitamin yeah right because a lot i think a lot of people are going to look at it and be like that's nice i have no time to implement that yeah yeah but, i think i think, but I think you'll get there yeah I mean, yeah and, and also by the way to the to the point of the heterogeneity earlier it seems like this is useful even if you only have it over a subset of your services Exactly. I think, you know, there's definitely a team use case, right, where, you know, you can keep track through that feed of of the changes that have happened that can help you in incident response and help you, you know, when things go wrong. But I think there's also just kind of, you know, the tracking the links and being able to get to the right place at the right time when you need it the most is, you know, important even when you have two to three services. So it's a definitely kind of like a a valuable thing. You know, we've, we've built our own platform on top of microservices 
microservices as well, right? Like, you know, we're, we're in the teens of microservices at this point. And, you know, it's actually useful for our own team internally <laughs> to understand kind of like changes that are happening across all those nice. services, as well as like, you know, getting to the right dashboard when, we, when you need to. So, you know, we're eating our own dog food in terms of like using our own product to track our own microservices to make it actually easier on our own engineers to, to do a good job every day. Going from infrastructure, platform developer, engineer at all these different companies you've worked at to building a product, what aspect of the product building, the product engineering process, what has been harder than you anticipated? Huh. What's been harder than anticipated? I think, you know... Coming from the infrastructure background, right, where the majority of my teams have been in kind of like the site reliability world or building observability tools or, you know, working on performance and traffic and and building like the backend systems that help kind of like engineers really go. I think, you know, a lot of that world can sometimes be quite reactive, right? So you're dealing with, you know, ways to make improvements to, to your infrastructure based on things that have recently happened and some toil around, around that kind of work. And, you know, basically doing a lot of things to kind of keep the lights on. And, you know, in some organizations, you're able to get over that hump to where you can start thinking about the future and really kind of like build products to make things better. Uh, but that doesn't always happen. Right. So I think, you know, one of the one of the, I think, really exciting things, at least for me, which could be looked at as a challenge, is that coming from like a, a greenfield space where there's not, you know, <laughs> there's not like a fire to go put out beyond kind of the problem that we're trying to solve and instead really being able to like think deeply about the product and build an experience that you know is is helpful and useful has been a different experience for me personally in terms of like you know not having to worry about you know like the, the thing blowing up all the time at this point and really being able to focus on kind of like the the true kind of like product development path and iterating with feedback so it's been different but also really fun and refreshing and exciting for me so is it an electron app? Is it a desk is it a desktop web? What's the give me a little bit of description of the stack or like what the tool actually looks like? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a it's a desktop app, uh, desktop web app right now. So just just runs completely in your browser. Again, on the on the back end, it's built on top of Kubernetes. Uh, most of our back end infrastructure is written in Go. We're using gRPC to communicate between those services and using Envoy as kind of like the uh, Envoy as the proxy between all those services to talk to one another. And then and for some of like the, our adjustment pipelines, we're running on those on top of AWS Lambda. So any kind of like API requests that are coming from the outside or going through a data pipeline before they make our way, make its way back into our back end. And on the front end, it's basically a React web app that we're using TypeScript for. So, you know, going with like a, a strongly typed language like Go on the back end, you know, we wanted to have a lot of, and with, with gRPC as like the communication layer, we wanted to have like, you know, a well-typed language on the front end as well. So we're using uh, TypeScript. And then most of the queries that go to our backend are going over a GraphQL interface to the backend. And yeah, that's that's primarily it at this point. Compare your present self to the intuitions of Joey Parsons five years ago. Let's see. I, I, I think like, you know, from myself five years ago, I think, you know, one of the cool things going back to like what we talked about really early on is that I've really been able to kind of see 
the evolution of how things have, you know, really changed over time, right? I remember in kind of like the like the late late aughts when AWS was becoming a real kind of like powerhouse, you know, when it had gone beyond just kind of like SQS and S3 and maybe EC2 at that point. I wasn't necessarily kind of like excited about that kind of move for infrastructure that I was running just from like a like a cost and security perspective without really thinking about like all the benefits and agility and the ability to like move fast and like build a business there. So I always kind of like look back on kind of like that time frame and think about like what my mindset was there in terms of like what I believed was possible with like new technology and kind of going away from potential like curmudgeonly ways back then. So I think, you know, now I wouldn't say that I'm too kind of like closed off around the potential of you know, new tools and the the abilities that those tools can provide to make the engineering experience of running infrastructure better, right? You know, there's there's always a lot of stuff on Twitter around kind of like you don't need Kubernetes, right? You don't need to use things like Lambda or ECS. You know, just a good old EC2 box will will do the trick <laughs> right. for for most web apps. Curmudgeons. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, not necessarily curmudgeons. I, I think that you know they have they definitely have like valid points, but. I think, you know, from from what I've seen and the types of companies that we've talked to that are kind of like in the early stage, that are building new startups is people are going with this stuff from the start, right? I think that the Airbnbs of the world, the lifts of the world, these kind of, you know, more forward thinking, you know, enterprises at this point have kind of proven and will continue to prove and, you know, every single time one of them goes on stage and talks about the infrastructure that they've built, even outlaying the challenges that plants the seed in the head of, you know, a lot of engineers to go out there and then, you know, begin playing with the stuff and figuring out how it fits even in, you know, a really small company. So I think that it's going to continue to evolve. And I think the more folks that are using this at different stages, it's actually great for the community and great for the ecosystem because, you know, the the user experience of of getting started will just continue to improve and make it even easier for the early adopters of the future to, to jump on board. So I think maybe my contrarian thing isn't necessarily contrarian in that I believe something completely different, but I think that a lot of this like new cloud native technology is here to stay and I think that the more people that use it early on the better off like the community yeah. and the onboarding experience is going to be and it's just great for everybody in the future yeah I mean the lambda stuff is the same thing that you didn't anticipate with with AWS like it just makes you really fast and really productive and it makes it really easy to wire your stuff together and yeah you're surgically you know stitching yourself to AWS but who cares like you're going to move fast you're going to build a business you know, AWS is never going to squeeze you like a sponge. And if they do, then, you know, Google Cloud's right there ready to stand up replacement services for the things that they raise prices on. So, yeah, I mean, all in on serverless, right? Yeah, yeah. If, if Yeah, if in, in even kind of like the advancements in like Google Cloud Run where you can just kind of drop a container and you're essentially running it without much stress or like the the new EK, like Fargate on, e, like EKS on Fargate. Mm-hmm. I think those, those are both really powerful tools that, you know, early adopters or, or folks that are just kind of getting started can use without actually really needing to fully grok the full platform underneath because they won't need to because, you know, the providers are obfuscating that stuff from them. So I think it's a pretty cool time from this space. And I'm really excited what the community is going to come up with and see what we can build on top of it. Joey, thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you. 